How does the love of science fiction inspire an interest in research in medicine? What's it like to establish an LGBTQ awareness in high school with no administrative support? How does one rise above their challenges to become a mentor and inspiration to others? And finally, what is a great strategy for choosing an MD-PhD program? Today on Talking to Missions at Med Student Life, I interview Laurel, a first-year medical student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Okay, well, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I have another great guest today, Laurel. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Just moved here. Yes. Incoming student. Incoming student. And we're going to get into that, but I want to go back to the beginning. Perfect. All right. So... What point in your journey did you start thinking about medical school? Or, to give a sneak peek to the listeners, MD-PhD. It's interesting because there's been a lot of little tiny milestones that all contributed to one Mm -hmm. inevitable decision. I always tell people I actually got into science so I could write Mm sci-fi. Uh, which is slightly different from what I'm actually going to be doing as a physician scientist. But it did... That you know of. That I know of, right. Um, But I think I've always been very scientifically minded, very curious. I, in middle school, won e-cyber mission science fair, best application of math, science, and technology. And it's always been something I've been drawn towards. And for a long time, I thought that I would be a biomedical engineer or something in that vein, because the conceptual side really appealed to me. But then when I got into high school, um, came out as queer, joined a lot of community organizing endeavors, I realized that the humanity of people was going to be more important to me in the long run Mm -hmm. than the application of concepts. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there was a lot more I could do at the intersection of research and medicine and people than being a materials engineer or something of that nature. Interesting. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yes. So let's go back. So... You grew up in Georgia. Yes. How how's it growing up in Georgia? Um, were, were you like Atlanta, or were you like more kind of rural? I was Metro Atlanta. I okay. was the epitome of the suburbs. Okay. My dad commuted into the city to work in a skyscraper, and I grew up in a very lush neighborhood with trees and the park and everything. Okay. So um, <clears throat> it was like it was like the South, but. Urban South. Yeah, okay. it was interesting. Food was great. Okay. I will never complain about Coca-Cola. Southern food. Yeah. 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 Um, but I did grow up in Forsyth County, which is affectionately, or not so affectionately, referred to as the Four Whites County, because mm-hmm. um, the KKK drove out every person of color in oh. the 20th century. Okay. And so there's a lot of cultural and social context for the situation I grew up in, mm-hmm. um, where... I was pretty oblivious about it until I wasn't anymore. Um, It's it's the county where Oprah came in the 90s and ate at a restaurant, and it was a big deal to have a public black figure come and participate in our community. I did my residency in D.C., and uh, I had a lot of friends who grew up in the South, like Mm -hmm. North Carolina, South Carolina. And, you know, like, they all worked in D.C., so they're all, you know, they're, 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 they were woke. But they, you know, when I, when, when I would talk to them sometimes, you know, they would tell, like, a lot of stories growing up about, like, they were taught about the Civil War in a very, oh, yeah. in a very different way. From the a War of Northern Aggression. War of Northern Aggression. Yeah, so, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, wow, it's very different. And to this day, like, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting, because, like, we would go down to North Carolina uh, the Outer Banks. You ever been to the Outer Banks? You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, gorgeous beaches. And it's just interesting, like, how, like, it's it's just, you know, it's just different. And, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was just fascinating to kind of hear their stories and kind of experience the South. And that, you know, I grew up in Utah, so I didn't really know any about any about this until I went, well, I knew about the Civil War. But, like, mm-hmm. I didn't realize, like, there was such a divide and some, so yeah, the, there, there was, like, a cultural. The history yeah. is still very tangible mm-hmm. in interactions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hard for people who are 
outside of the South, where they, of course, know about the Civil War and they know about the Civil Rights Movement, but they don't realize that it's been, you know, a generation Mm -hmm. since some of the most pivotal, pivotal shifts in the South. And so, and then I actually, I grew up, I had my pediatrician was a black woman. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I grew up with the mindset that, you know, healthcare is a inclusive space, I guess. Mm -hmm. And in reality, that's not necessarily the case in a lot of spheres, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly health health outcomes for women, health outcomes for people of color, health Mm -hmm. outcomes for LGBTQ individuals. And so it's, I think that my upbringing was, of course, instrumental because it was my upbringing and Mm -hmm. here I am. But I think that I simultaneously have this immense well of optimism because of the really incredible resilient people I grew up around and received support from, but also I have cultivated an awareness of where the system doesn't work Mm -hmm. um, and where there's a lot to be done, which is why I decided to pursue a career as a physician scientist because it's important to me to both be a physician who can practice and who can interface with people and um, be the doctor that marginalized communities deserve while also uh, being able to conduct the research to, on a wider scale, improve um, people's healthcare experiences. Excellent. We're still going to unpack some more of what you said. Sci-fi. Yeah. So um, when you say sci-fi, and like I got like I don't think I've ever talked about sci-fi on the podcast. When I start thinking about sci-fi, I'm thinking about Star Trek: Next Generation because that's like gotcha. how old I am, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is like pre Comic Con days, <laughs> um, pre Battlestar. Well, they had the old Battlestar Galactica. Um, but yeah, I just remember my friends and I we were like. We'd have these deep discussions about what a photon torpedo is. Again, this is before the internet, so mm-hmm. now I think like you can like connect with other people who like would help this discussion. But I just remember I was just a super nerd, yeah, uh, in junior high, high school, and I would eagerly, you know, I just know that like Star Trek: Next Generation was always every Sunday mm-hmm. at six to seven, and that was like that was the time. So I'm curious, like, what what was your sci-fi? What was your passion? I'm a reader, I would say. Although, like like many people in my position, I'm a reader who struggles to find time to read. So that's the the trade-off there. And so I, growing up, I wanted to be the next Michael Crichton. And Mm -hmm. everyone knows Jurassic Park, but not as many people know about the, the, the books he's written about. The drama strain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, the disease and the genetics. Mm-hmm. and Went to medical um, school, never practiced. Right, yeah, right, but exactly. But he was a phenomenal writer, yeah. Um, and so I wanted to be the next, you know, first I thought Michael Crichton. Uh, my New Year's resolution for this year is to read all the Hugo's best novels written by women. Mm. And so now I'm realizing I don't want to be Michael Crichton. I think they're, I think they're, really incredible women who have slayed the game who people don't uh, necessarily recognize. I'm obsessed with Connie Willis who does historical fiction in a time travel uh, context. Um, But so yeah, I read everything I could get my hands on and I figured if I could pursue science, I could tell these compelling stories that had real world implications to people who Um, I think there's this, I I think a lot about this sort of white tower of science Mm -hmm. where there are a lot of people who think, oh, well, I don't, I'm I'm not interested in science or I don't understand science. And they kind of already remove themselves from the situation and they think, oh, there are scientists in lab coats somewhere who who are figuring out something and they'll communicate it to me eventually, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is a, a real problem because then you have people who don't have... You know, you look at stuff with climate change and with vaccinations, mm-hmm. and you have people who don't have the framework to even have that conversation, let alone participate. So that's what I wanted to. And honestly, I'm still really interested in. I did a uh, science communication internship at 
the Marcus Autism Center mm-hmm. in Atlanta, where I basically worked on how can I make visual communicative um, presentations for families whose children have just been diagnosed with autism. How can we communicate the complexity mm-hmm. of the genetics and of the research that's going on at the center to these parents who are just worried about the well-being of their kids? And so I I don't know how the fiction writing side of things will go, mm-hmm. but I think the emphasis on communication to people outside of my field and who... And it's something that I've always... I... I have been involved in like trans advocacy for mm-hmm. for years and it's something where i i write letters to people mm-hmm. and i write speeches to people and that sort of well books are another way to communicate ideas mm-hmm. so it sounds like if you are like with the many hats you are wearing <laughs> or will wear mm-hmm. but if you become an author one day that could reach the next generation right yeah that yes. can reach that's a um, perspective yeah there, it can reach more people you know it's just I don't know, I, so, so you know like you know I, I tease people in my office sometimes like just the millennial generation you know like there's a different way of communicating information mm-hmm. there's a different way of receiving information and I'm not sure where we're going with that as a culture but I I do know that it's like it's a very powerful way to give young people like this love of science mm-hmm. and I you know personally I don't care if it comes from like a TV show or a book or a blog or the gram or right. whatever, whatever but if you can somehow communicate that love of science because we have like you know Laurel you're right we have so many issues problems facing our country like talk about climate change and mm-hmm. you know so like like how do we communicate this to others and how do we because like I, I'm not sure we're going to fix it, right. but I, I hope like the generation that comes after us will start fixing it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I'm older than you, so I have less optimism. <laughs> but like, like I'm not sure. Like we're going to solve it, mm-hmm. but we need to inspire the next group to help address it. I don't lay know. down you, roots. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's it's funny how you talk about the different ways of you know sending information. I was talking to a friend who's applying to medical school right now who's complaining about character limits for essays Mm. and and told me, that's like five tweets. Mm -hmm. And I had never even like conceptualized a personal essay as really that's, that's five tweets about yourself. Um, And so I think it's, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm optimistic in that with the social media is a double edged sword, but you have people who are, like you said, more connected, who can find their communities and mm-hmm. don't necessarily have the option of being unaware. They could still be uninformed, but at least if you're venturing forth into the world, you're probably going to encounter at least some of these ideas. Yeah. So I think there was this shift of, you know, universities have always been hot spots of advocacy and change and you know that's why you have all these 22 year olds who were mm-hmm. historical figures which is wild uh, being 22 now mm-hmm. um, but I think what happens now is you have people who leave those spaces who graduate but who still have access through social media and community spaces to the same energy of mm change and commitment to yeah. reform and so i i know that you know time is a wheel and it's cyclic and it's it can be frustrating and young people are always optimistic and older people are typically more cynical but i think that at least societally we've we've there's been a shift you know the the boulder has been moved a little bit and i mm-hmm. think that hopefully people will start to take um some of the most pressing issues seriously, right? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. All right, pivot. You also mentioned coming out as queer. Yes. What is that? What did that look Look like? like. What what did that mean? Mm -hmm. How old were you? Um, Yeah, so I grew up, my family uh, belongs to the Mormon church Mm -hmm. or the LDS church, depending on your uh, nomenclature. Uh, so I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian environment, and it wasn't until I got to 
high school that I met uh, LGBTQ individuals and started to develop the language mm-hmm. for, um, you know, what I was experiencing and who I was. And for me, I guess it was almost a it was almost a good thing that I grew up in such a such a insulated environment because I didn't actually ever really hear any negative stuff about mm-hmm. the queer community. Um, because it was just something that wasn't talked about. So it was hard because I didn't have any conceptualization, um, any real language, but I, I didn't experience some of like the outward prejudice that a lot of other queer people from religious communities grew up hearing and mm-hmm. internalizing. So it's kind of a toss-up. But I went to um, a very, very large public high school um, and I think I've always, I've always been, um, I'm trying to think of the, the least dramatic way of putting it. I've always been someone who is involved with the, like the fringe, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. The fringe. Yeah. Not the French. Not the French. Okay. The uh, French. the French are okay, but, um. <laughs> the French. All right. Yeah. So I. It was tricky because some of the... Basically, at my high school, we had a handful of outwardly queer students, and they faced a lot of discrimination um, and, like, physical and verbal abuse. And that was something that um, I got involved. We started um, a gay-straight alliance at my high school, which was really tricky because we did not have the high school administrative support. Mm-hmm. And we had to really fight for that and it was basically being involved in these spaces um where i i identify as a trans person i use they them pronouns identify as non-binary or trans masculine which can take some more explaining at times but basically um being around other queer people and other trans people was a really empowering experience for me especially um individuals who were and this and it sounds really simple but I think it's significant when you come from these spaces individuals who were happy mm-hmm. who were established one of my friends now who's a few years older than me um is um when I was in high school he had just graduated and was a you know a trans man who was in a happy relationship he's engaged now um and it and it's interesting now that i am that individual for some other people i am a really happy um you know openly trans person i'd like to think i've been professionally successful to at least a certain degree and then i'm i'm engaged with a to a wonderful wonderful human being um and so um it was hard um, I left the LDS church when I was 16 and gr- actually graduated uh, high school at the age of 16 because mm-hmm. there was um, some fallout from that with my family um, and ended up working full time at a pediatric uh, dentist office, which was also really informative for mm-hmm. making my clinical decisions and um, ended up being really, really lucky and getting uh, the foundation fellowship at the University of Georgia, which is the premier scholarship for our state flagship university, which allowed me to um, receive a undergraduate education, which was significant for me because I didn't have my parents' um, support to pursue an education. Um, Sounds like you went through a lot during your teenage years. Yeah, it was it was an experience. And I think that's one of those things where I, so like I said, I'm 22 now, um, and I both recognize that like temporally I'm, I'm somewhat inexperienced, but I've been doing my own, you know, I graduated high school six years ago, mm-hmm. and I've had a mentality of I have to be independent and have resources for myself for the past seven-ish years, or I'm not going to have the opportunities that I want. Mm-hmm. And I think... That's a mentality that has been uh, challenging, but also pretty useful in getting to the point that I'm at now, where I 
feel pretty confident going into a long MD-PhD program because I've always had to be very exact about what do I want, what do I have the resources to pursue, and what can I do with that. Mm-hmm. So, As you learned about who you are, as you, you know, you kind of talked about you learned the language. Mm-hmm. What did that look like when you moved off to college? Because it sounds like you started to become a mentor. You started to be able to, like, grow even more as a mm-hmm. person and then reach out to others. Would you? Yeah. yeah. I, I think that uh, college was a really interesting experience. Because we're talking Athens, Georgia. Athens, right? Georgia. University of Georgia. Yeah, which is... Two hours away from home? Uh, yeah, like an hour and a half. Yeah, okay. Give right. or take. Yeah. Um, so you're still in the South. So I'm still in the South. Um, probably had some friends that went there from high school. Yes, I actually... Knew some folks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, only person I interacted with from high school, though, was my now fiance, then partner, okay. though. So it was it was kind of a a fresh start in a lot of ways. Um, my opportunity to where I, I was out from the beginning at my undergrad, contacted um, the people in my scholarship, you know, was got involved with the LGBT Resource Center, which was a remarkable experience. Um, but it was at times it was uh, really challenging because I think there's this can conceptualization of like what an LGBTQ person looks like and for a lot of people that is a a white cis gay man mm-hmm. and I'm not that um, sometimes people read me as that when I'm with my fiance which is very different from mm-hmm. <laughs> what I anticipate but so it was something where I so I was the I was the first trans person to um, be, I think, open in the Foundation Fellowship. I was the first out trans person in the Foundation Fellowship. I was the first out trans person uh, in the Dean William Tate Honor Society, which is the oldest honor society at the University of Georgia, which Mm -hmm. used to be an all-men's honor society that they eventually opened to women, Mm -hmm. and now it's open to um, non-binary people like myself, and they've had in the years following me, I believe they've always had a trans person who've, who's been admitted to the society. So I think for me, my undergrad experience was an exercise in constant visibility and I think taking up, up space mm-hmm. um, because I hear it a lot. People who say, oh, I've never, I've never used they, them pronouns for a person, or I've never met an out trans person, or I've, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of I've never. And my response is always two-pronged. One, you probably have, but you didn't know, because there's still a lot of stigma. And unfortunately, I have the, um, the obnoxious confidence to Mm -hmm. deal with the fallout regardless. And and two, now they have, so now they can learn and they can adjust. Mm -hmm. Um, Life is one wonderful growing period. Um, And so my undergrad experience, I think was a lot of, like you said, being not just a mentor, which was a really wonderful opportunity. And I, I, I love and am excited for people even a few years younger than me, because I think they, they have a lot, um, of opportunity that I'm really grateful for. But I think being, in a lot of regards, the first blank so that the people after me felt safe and felt comfortable to pursue the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the 2018 Georgia Truman Scholar, which was a tremendous opportunity. And since then, I've had several trans people from around the country come to me for advice in applying and for um, comfort and... Um, and as and at least one of those individuals was successful the next year in becoming the Truman Scholar of their state. Mm-hmm. And they told me that, um, and it was a really wonderful um, conversation for me because it was really rewarding of, um, you know, several years of real intentionality on my part and mm-hmm. being, you know, out and uh, which wasn't always safe and which wasn't always comfortable and which wasn't always optimal and this person told me that I'd given them the confidence to apply to be out and then they received the recognition Mm -hmm. so I think that's um and during this time Laurel you're in the middle of doing some really high quality research Mm -hmm. you know and you're doing all these other you know quote unquote normal activities that all undergrads do and go through in preparing to apply to 
an MD PhD program. Yeah. I mean, so like, like, how did you do that? How did you start branching out? How did you find time? Mm-hmm. How did you balance all? Because like, how you know, like you've done so much. Like, how did you how did you balance all those demands on your schedule? Um, oftentimes, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I will say my first thing is always I was really lucky. My my now fiance then partner has been my rock, and mm-hmm. I not everyone is so lucky to have a behind the scenes person who who you know cooks and does the dishes when you're studying mm-hmm. and who drives you to the you know volunteer opportunity. And so I'm really lucky where I, I have always had my um, my other half to really support me through a lot of that, and I'm really really grateful. Um, But I think for me, it was, I told you earlier, I've always been, um, I'm 100% committed. I, and for me, it was, I felt, you know, I had a period of time where I didn't think I was ever, I didn't think I was going to go to college, you know, I thought I was going to be the, you know, valedictorian of my high school program and work minimum wage for the rest of my life, which was, um, is not necessarily a bad thing, but is not representative of what I saw for myself for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so I got to my undergrad experience and I basically told myself, if I don't take advantage of every opportunity, um, then it's not fair to myself and it's not fair to the people like me who wanted to be in my position and weren't in my position. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I pursued a lot of opportunities rigorously where the two, uh, research projects I had that were trans-related mm. were projects that I started, that I approached people with a certain skill set and said, hey, I want to do this research and was able to conduct a two-year you know, national study on um, trans students in university healthcare settings and work on uh, metrics for gender identity for electronic healthcare records and that... Um, those kinds of opportunities mixed with, um, you know, I, I have two degrees and a certificate in interdisciplinary writing, actually, in mm-hmm. case I want to write the sci-fi. You will um, write the sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, on the, it's on the to-do list. Um, and so I think for me, it was a lot of pursuit. Mm-hmm. I actively sought out opportunities. I organized a speakers bureau, which is where LGBT students go into public spaces to tell their stories and kind of provide a um, context to queer identities for most of it was like budding professionals. So people who are going to be teachers, people who are going um, to be healthcare workers so they could actually talk to LGBTQ people and inform themselves and prepare. Um, but I will say that um, a skill that I've had to cultivate more so than a lot of others is the ability to say no to things mm-hmm. and to say. I still struggle with that one. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the, it's hard because like doctors are frequently asked to sit on committees, or right. See more patients, or stay a little bit later, or right. take on more, you know, take on more cases in the OR. So the ability to say no is really yeah. hard. Yeah, and I, I actually I called twenty eighteen was the year of no, be, mm-hmm. or maybe not now is mm-hmm. a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. I like that because yeah. I really did. I did a lot of things, um, and I I really enjoyed all of those experiences and. I, I wear a lot of hats and I love a lot of things and I have a lot of interests. And so that's what's difficult for me because people say, you know, do what you love. And I love a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to start prioritizing, you know, where am I doing the best work? Where am I doing the most work? And also where am I having the healthiest balance between? Because um, like I said, I think that I wanted to, seize the moment um, and I carpe diemed myself into a corner mm-hmm. and I think I, I had to realize that um, it's it's better to do a few things um, and be a healthy you know sleeping eating meals individual than to try and do a million things and um, kind of evaporate I guess mm-hmm. as an individual. So you're working hard. You're doing all these different activities. Mm-hmm. Um, your fiance, what's his name? Peter. Peter. He's helping you out, doing the yes. dishes. Doing the dishes. Telling you, Laurel, you can do this. You can do this. 
So, you know, just to kind of give fre- reference, a frame, like when you started applying, mm-hmm. how many programs did you look at? Look at how many did you, you know, and like what was that? What was your thought mm-hmm. process? What was your kind of strategy? So don't make fun of me. Um, but I, yeah, so many programs did I look at? I looked at all of them. Okay. My freshman year, I made a spreadsheet of every MD PhD program in the U.S. Oh, wow. And I <laughs> went through all of them and I so like, did it. It's like 90, 100? Or? Yeah, a little over 100. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 I feel bad. I don't know the exact number. No, but the, it's, it's variable. It, 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 it fluctuates, fluctuates, right. Yeah, and yeah. so I took out the ones that weren't established programs. So okay. there were some where you can go to medical school and then sometimes you can take Brand a break. Brand new program. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can get, you know, and you can maybe get your PhD in the middle. I'm like, that's a lot of variability <laughs> for, you know, a, yeah. a doctorate. Yeah. Uh, took out the ones that weren't fully funded because um, eight years of loans is a little intimidating to me Mm. and basically did a tiered system where I narrowed down um, the programs, which I also had to be really, really intentional um, because I um, I was paying myself for application fees, although I did have um, some support. I have a a physician I I shadowed who uh, paid a couple of my secondary fees, which Mm. I'm still very grateful for. Um, but it was it was something where I read somewhere that the average number of, of medical schools people apply to is like twenty. Yeah, and it's kind of the number we toss around. That's yeah. horrifying to me <laughs> um, because that's you know hundreds if not thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I already you know I paid to take the MCAT um, out of pocket. I didn't take any prep courses for the MCAT because mm-hmm. I did not have the finances to do that. Um, I had a scholarship to allow me to you know, attend college, I had enough money for housing and food. That was my stipend. And that was, that was it, you know? So I worked actually, I did work a lot through my undergrad, um, to have any kind of money to have any sort of flexibility with. Um, and so I was very, very, very critical when I was looking at programs, which you should take as a compliment. Were you looking for like any particular fields, or were you looking at geography, or you're more looking towards I established? At, I looked at everything. Oh, everything. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, like I said, there's tier systems oh, okay. and rankings, and okay. you know different pages on the spreadsheet. And so I basically figured out I could pay to apply to seven or eight places. Mm, okay. um, and so I took out every place that didn't have, an, like I said, established MD PhD program um, that was competitive and funded and looked to actually prepare physician scientists. And then I looked at field specifics. So I have, I love genetics has always been, um, probably my, my scientific field of choice. My degree, my scientific degree is in biochemistry, but Mm -hmm. that's because I was doing research with biochemical tools, investigating congenital disorders for three years of my undergrad. So um, genetics has always been my first love, and so I looked at places with uh, good programs for genetics, personalized medicine, and so forth. Um, I looked at medical schools that had opportunities for telehealth and rural health because, you know, my 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 field of interest is transgender healthcare, and I want everyone, I want every trans person to have access to healthcare, not just the people who can travel to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I did all that, I had about 15-ish schools. Okay. And then I looked at geography and mm-hmm. I said, okay, where can I see myself living for eight, eight years? Eight, yeah. maybe ten <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah. A hot minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am very, very, I'm very picky mm-hmm. about uh, where I live because I grew up in the suburbs so I grew up in the land of convenience mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I couldn't walk everywhere, but you could walk a little bit, but you could also drive to mm-hmm. anything. And it was just, just start sweating. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Cause it was in Atlanta. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and so I, and also of course, cost of living because mm-hmm. I did the whole poor college student thing and I don't recommend it. Mm-hmm. I, I did the whole ramen noodles four yeah, times a week. Yeah. Ramen yeah. on top of and turned over cardboard box as a table. Mm. And I was, you know, I was happy. I was lucky to be there, but it, it was hard. And so there are certain MD PhD programs 
uh, which I won't name by name, but I'm sure you can guess where they are, where mm-hmm. they have uh, stipends that's really not enough to cover the cost of living. And so yeah. people still take, you either take out loans or you do nothing for eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really wasn't appealing to me because, like I said, I, I'm, I've worked really hard the past two years to uh, have time for myself and to do nice things for myself. And I came from a place of very, very intense financial insecurity. And so mm-hmm. to me, I'm still developing the skills to like, I deserve to buy myself lunch if mm-hmm. I want lunch sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, yeah, so I, I picked um, eight programs and then uh, applied to those. The, the final deciding factor was geography, but each program I applied to was a long long journey of uh, evaluating and contacting people. Of the eight, how many did you get interviews? Two. Two. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And so obviously one was Utah. You don't have to talk about the other one. Mm -hmm. But uh, like, what was it like? Because like, you know, again, from my vantage point, Mm -hmm. when I look at the MD-PhD, it's it's a little different because they fly you. It's like a two day interview process. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first day you interview kind of with the PhD side, the second day the MD side, but then they usually schedule activities. Right. You're kind of like hanging out with these people. You're wooed. Yeah. <laughs> some of these people you're going to see again. Some of them won't. Yeah. There's like a circuit. So you might see them at another school that you interview with. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's this interesting dance yes. as it were. Um, so yeah, what, what was it like to interview? And like, and then yeah. like, you know, your entire life is kind of sunk right. into this application. Right. And then you go through various people have read it in various depths. Yeah. So you're getting kind of interesting questions, random questions. Like what, what yeah. was that like from yours now looking back? I mean, mm-hmm. you know. um, I, I would say first it was exciting because I, I recognized MD PhD programs are, Med school is competitive, and then you add MD-PhD where it's fully funded. Yeah, and it's, it's extremely competitive. So yeah. I was... They're really, taking a bet. Like they're, right, they're, they're putting, gambling. <laughs> yeah, they're putting all their money on you. We're going to pay and, for you to come here. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I was excited because I was very worried I wasn't going to get in anywhere because mm-hmm. I just was, I wasn't playing the numbers game right. Like You're mm-hmm. supposed to apply. And the, everyone I told to was like, oh, you need to apply to more places. And I was like, you can give me money if you would like, <laughs> and I will apply to more. But mm-hmm. this is what I'm working with. Mm-hmm. I think I think I actually ended up applying to seven places. I think I came up short, actually, on the last one. Um, so I was first I was like thrilled because like I one of the biggest pieces of advice I got applying for MD-PhD, and especially because I was so financially um, cautious was don't apply somewhere if you don't think you would be happy to go there. And so, um, you know, I got these, you know, a couple of interviews and I was like, perfect. I did it. Um, Because my, my whole mentality, which is maybe, you know, young, naive confidence is, if I and what I want to do is specific trans health. Mm-hmm. I think that is probably was my biggest issue with my applications because it's not it's it's not you know neuroscience. It's not anatomy. It's not really a an established field at different universities. So I think that was the issue talking to people. They liked me. They didn't like what I wanted to do necessarily mm-hmm. at places where I didn't get an invitation to interview because they were like we just don't you know you're gambling already on this person and they didn't know where to put me basically. Mm-hmm. We don't know if we have a lab established right, that would right. fit with what your vision is. Yes. You, yeah. um, which I understand because that's why so many MD PhDs, you know, it's already a struggle to, you know, merge the clinical uh, practice with the research. And so mm-hmm. it's already an issue. And I was just mm-hmm. throwing a wrench into that. So my thought process with interviews is I felt like if I could, if I could just get there and if I could just talk to people and just, like, help them see my perspective, that mm-hmm. it would work, you know, because I, I'm, I'm so passionate about what I do, and it's so important, and somebody needs to do it, you know, mm-hmm. where I was enthralled to have an invitation and to talk about what I love. And like you said, get weird questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, every person I talked to had, you know, read my application, was was very what i mean by red red, weird questions is like like your research can be interpreted by different people so sometimes the md phd people like like 
I've heard again. Mm-hmm. That's kind of not my world, but that sometimes some of the the PhD get folks they really ask detailed questions. Oh, about they research. do. Yeah. yeah, like it's almost like they try to stump you. Right? Like, did no, you yeah. really, you know, like that, translational. Yeah. I got some translational questions of like my my biochem lab in a different mm-hmm. context, which yeah. I really I had to, I had to think about because yes. especially because yes. it's yeah. been I did my biochem lab for the first three years and then my PI left the university, so mm-hmm. I hadn't done that for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not anyways, but so it was really interesting because I think the whole, the, even just with medical school, the whole song and dance is so interesting to mm-hmm. me because it's something you, you work immensely hard for the privilege of being in the room. And then all of a sudden it's about you mm-hmm. and it's, you know, we, this you is know, your moment. This, this is, is your, your moment. Time, this is your time to <laughs> exactly. shine. Exactly. Yeah. And so for the university of Utah, MD, PhD, um, interview, um, they, you know, they set up activities. Mm. We went out to eat. Yeah. People were so nice. <laughs> Everyone was so nice. Um, and so it was, it was fascinating um, because I think I was ready to claw my way like mm. into the program. And then um, people were very receptive. And I don't know if I will get in trouble for saying this, but... One of the people who interviewed me during my interview basically said, I don't want to grill you. Let's just talk. Mm -hmm. And that was wonderful to me because I think I, you know, I had I had the survivor's mentality of like, I've got to I've got to nail this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really reassuring to feel like. It was me, the person who was being considered, not just the application. And that's something that I always have, um, I keep my eye on, because I think it's easy to turn students into applications mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, human beings. So uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard because um, there's, as you mentioned, like, it's such a competitive process. There's so many people applying. Um, there is this day or days when you get to be interviewed, but essentially everything that you do is kind of boiled down to this paper file. Right. And then you have the interview, so then you get to meet the person in person. Um, but still, people are forced to make decisions. You can argue with a limited amount of information. And these decisions are very impactful. They change lives. Right. Um and it's hard uh, because I think I think all admission offices, all programs struggle with this, is that we want the best students who will become the best doctors. Mm-hmm. But there's still growth that happens. Life still happens. Mm-hmm. Even more so in the MD-PhD program because it's longer. Right. Um, yeah. So, like, Laura, like, I remember calling you. I remember welcoming you to the program. <laughs> and what I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were shocked. Because I remember you were you were quiet. You were you were happy, but also I think you were kind of taken off guard because you mm-hmm. found out pretty early on. Yes, right? and much I think earlier that, than I anticipated. Yeah, and I think that so just walk me through that. What and then what started happening on your side? Yeah. I mean, uh, so were you like, oh my, this is great, or like, oh no, like you know, <laughs> like now I have oh, to no. make like you know, because oh, like you know, you have Peter, was, you have like oh, there's this move. Well, that yeah, was the other all thing. The, life starts happening, right? So, yeah. I um, I actually that was another. Um, factor that I I didn't mention but was significant. Every place I applied to, I sat down with Peter and I said, would you consider living here? Mm-hmm. And um, so every single place I applied to was one where I had his A-OK. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't any place that he said no to, but there were places I knew that he would say no to mm-hmm. um, because I'm a suburb person. He is a city person. So there were places I looked at that were you know, a, a rural medical school of, you know, a thousand people in the town. And I knew that that wouldn't um, necessarily fly with him. But also that wouldn't, to me, it's, it's not the best opportunity to see the most of medicine necessarily. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were other considerations. Um, and, and you can take this however you will. Um, but my, my first, my, my non-Utah interview I had before Utah. Mm-hmm. And I went and I had a great time. And I was like, wow awesome. I'm so excited. And, and then I had my, my Utah interview happened a few weeks later and I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. 
so like this is the school mm-hmm. and I felt really bad because um my I basically I told the people around me when I got home from the because I knew with the first university I wouldn't hear until January based okay. on the system mm-hmm. um and so I got home from my Utah interview and I told the people around me um and at that point I think I was waiting to hear from like one or two more schools. Yeah, like maybe I'll get was, another interview right, offer. Right, because there yeah. was other stuff that yeah. I, I could have gone to the medical school and not the MD-PhD program, but yep. I basically I said no. Um, and, and so basically I came home from the University of Utah MD-PhD interview and I told the people around me, um, if, I get, if I get the offer from University of Utah, that's where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got the call, what was it? It was like two weeks later, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And... I think that's why I was quiet mm-hmm. is because I in my in my mind I was like oh it's over mm-hmm. we're done mm-hmm. we did it yeah. <laughs> um which was a, such a relief because you know you spend years working for this one thing mm-hmm. and it was um it was it was nice because I was I was waiting I was waiting on other things and I basically was like never mind no mm-hmm. thank you um and and, you know, and then with the second look, I basically, as soon as I had the dates, we bought tickets for myself and for Peter to come out. So had, he, had he ever been here before? No, he oh, hadn't. Okay. And had he been west of the Mississippi? He'd been to California one time. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it was a big uh, jump, like mountains yeah. and dry yes. heat. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that was something that was a little bit stressful because I have this, you know, this person in my life who I'm, I'm having to plan for both of us. And I I told him, I was like, I think you're really going to like it. Mm -hmm. And he, and he's, he's generally, I make fun of him all the time for having commitment issues, which I guess he doesn't because we're engaged, but, um, he's just a very deliberate person in Mm -hmm. certain ways. So sometimes I'll, I'll say, Hey, we should go do this thing. And he'll go, Oh, that could be fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it will be, Mm -hmm. it is fun. Like, (laughs) but that's just how he is. And so I was like, I really think you're going to like Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was like, okay, I hope I do. Mm -hmm. And I was like, uh, and so we came out for the, the second look experience. Um, and, um, it was funny. It was the, so we were here, was it, it was like Wednesday night. Yeah, again, they did something morning. a little different for them. To yeah, they had it's, it's a longer. few more days. Yeah. We went to Park City. It was yeah. a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But basically, it was like the second night we were in, you know, we were in Utah. He was like, oh, so you have to come here. And I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so uh, he's job hunting right now for jobs in Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. And so... Our economy is pretty good. Yeah. 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 And he's, he's in journalism. Mm-hmm. And so there's several stations. There's, you know... Um, there's a major newspaper. It's it's something where that was another thing where I realized that not only is it it's a it's it's a great place for me, but it's also a very good place for him because mm-hmm. some of the other places I considered, and then the other place I interviewed and could have gone to, um, I think it would have been a lot more challenging to find an opportunity for mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. cause that's the thing. I don't want to be one of those, one of those doctors who like is just dragging a second person. You mm-hmm. know, I've always felt, and I've always told him that even though our, our prioritize, our prior, prioritization is a little bit different professionally. Um, we say that I, I'm work, he's play. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think I won't always want to value his career as much as I value my own. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice cause I'm, Salt Lake is, I like it, mm-hmm. um, which is good because I live here now. But um, <laughs> I think there's a really nice balance of it's incredibly livable, but it it also is it's a city and it's a you know a state capital yeah. and it's a um, it's an airport hub and he does political journalism mm-hmm. and so it's something where I live a block from the state capital and so there's a there's a lot of opportunity that there wouldn't necessarily be some of the other places I considered and the other place I considered, I suppose. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's good. I think the hardest thing is that both of us are Southern people moving to the The opposite side of the country. Mm -hmm. But I mean, 
that's life. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked into the Rhodes Scholarship, which would have been across the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was emotionally prepared to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Laurel, just this has been great. And just the last few minutes to kind of bring this back, and if you feel comfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have the white coat ceremony coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, really special day. That's where all the students receive their white coats. They, they get cloaked in or hooded no no cloaked cloaked into the field of medicine you get your mm-hmm. white coat and it's a really powerful you know event and i'm just curious because you kind of talked about you know your family and you had a falling out mm-hmm. it sounds like yeah are you will, will i get to see him at white coat or or yes. i see some of them or like i mean how's mm-hmm. that going and mm-hmm. as you kind of embark on this next stage of your career mm-hmm. you know i'm just i'm just curious about that yeah mm-hmm. i had the opportunity because I was independent to really establish my relationship with my family on my own terms. Mm -hmm. And my family has uh, come a long way and has worked very hard to sort of meet me in the middle. And so at my white coat ceremony, my parents are going to be there and Peter's going to be there. And um, they have a hard time a little bit with sort of what I want to do uh, in trans health. But they're very, very proud of uh, how hard I've worked for it mm-hmm. and that I'm going to be a doctor and, you know, mm-hmm. those, those, that side of things. And so um, it's, it, is, it is sometimes, um, I think that queer people with family, you have to, sometimes you have to, it's very much prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, um, interesting. It's a little surreal at times that I, like you said, I've had this whole journey and went through a lot and it was, it was difficult. But now, like you said, I'm having this, I'm having a white coat ceremony and my Mm -hmm. fiance and my parents are going to be there. Yeah. And along with all your classmates, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like the Super Bowl. It's like a special, right. special day, right? All of your hard work. I mean, there's a lot of hard work to come, mm-hmm. but also I feel like white coat is a, is a great signifier of all the hard work you've done, right? To it, get to this point, it's a milestone. Yeah, it's it's a very prestigious to get into an MD PhD program at such an outstanding school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's kind of unreal. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting, and I. Th- and I think, like you said, the thing that's the most exciting about it is it's a beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much left to come. And I'm very, very excited for it. So That's awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to meeting them. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting Peter, too. Mm-hmm. So is he, is he here now or is he? He's still in Atlanta. Okay. Uh, he's got a job in Atlanta and he's job hunting. I sent him. I, I'm annoying, and I, I look and I job hunt for him, and I send him links, and I'm like, have you applied to this yet? Have you applied to this yet? So he's spending his weekend uh, just applying to, like, 28 jobs that I sent him uh, for Pioneer Day when I when I was at home. So, um, but he should, hope, he should hopefully, when he, you know, just needs one job, and then he'll mm-hmm. be here, so. Cool. Well, Laurel, we'll have to have you come back on the pod um, after school starts and, and things get settled and like I think people will be very interested to kind of hear your journey especially like you know two years of med school mm-hmm. four to five years of PhD we'll see I'm trying to read your face right now um, you, I, you, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting for quicker okay, I, right. I'm a go-getter you, maybe like the, the, the precious three year right yeah. right <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've already done my PhD. Oh, okay, all right. So. You're just working on it. Yeah, but I think people want to hear more about your journey because it's it's very fascinating. It's very beautiful. Thanks. And it sounds it's it sounds like it's been hard, but it's been worth it. Oh, like, absolutely. And you've grown a lot. So, well, thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.